0: Hello listeners, Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. I got something a little weird, but a lot fascinating for you tonight. If you've been following this show for any length of time, you may have noticed that I simply can't resist a story that involves an outsider person who obsessively pursues some sort of unusual goal or task. I'm not sure what it is about this type of story that I dig, but there's something about a person hopelessly committed to something that doesn't necessarily have a logical point or purpose. Perhaps it's simply because this type of obsession can only be the result of pure and sincere passion. Let me point towards some past episodes that could be used as examples. In the past, I've covered Frankie McDonald a man from my hometown who is known around the world for his passionate weather reports that he shares on YouTube at a prolific frequency. Then there's the controversial musical artist Tonetta, a 70-ish year old man from Toronto who's been writing and recording heavily sexualized music and creating music videos since, well, since music videos existed. And of course there is another example, but don't really want to get into it. Let's just say it's the story of a guy who is really into leather somethings. But that's all I want to say about that one. So I'm going to move on to tonight's story. We're going to be talking about another person whose obsession has earned them a spot on the map of bizarre and unusual Canadian people, places, and events. According to him, the story starts in the 1970s when two extraterrestrials entered his home through his television set and took him aboard their spaceship. With these extraterrestrials, he traveled to their planet and learned engineering concepts previously unknown to mankind. And after returning to Earth, and from that point on, David Hamill would dedicate nearly every moment and every cent he had following their instructions and attempting to build a flying saucer with hopes of one day returning to their planet. So yeah, this is a weird one. In tonight's episode, we'll be joined by Dr. Matthew Hayes, the director of the film about this story, titled The Granite Man of Gilmore. And our topic is David Hamill and his granite saucer. So, Matthew, people may recognize your name from your past appearance on the show, but if they don't, tell us us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, okay, so I... Um, I'm currently an instructor at Northern Lakes College, which is actually in Northern Alberta. I teach remotely though, I live in Ottawa. Uh, I teach history, sociology, philosophy, and prior to that, I did my PhD at Trent University in Ontario, where I wrote a dissertation about the history of Canada's UFO investigation, which lasted from 1950 to 1995. And I have some other projects on the go and following up with that, uh, and my most recent uh, projects is actually a film a short film called the granite man of gilmore which um is related to that research and kind of came out of it so like, a lot of people consider
0: themselves like ufo researchers but i think you're one of the only like doctors who could be like <laughs> i'm kind of a doctor of ufos is that fair to say
1: yeah i guess so in a sense yeah absolutely i I have I'm a doctor. I have a doctorate in uh Canadian studies technically and yeah, I, I have studied UFOs for years. I think I study it a bit differently than a lot of other people. I'm not particularly interested in, you know, what they are, where they come from, although obviously I'd love to know that kind of stuff. Um I'm more interested in UFOs as a social political phenomenon. What kind of impact has it had on people's lies over the years and and especially in Canada, there's lots of research on the American stuff, on the British stuff, very, very little on the Canadian side. so I'm interested in exploring that, yeah and you and i one thing we
0: have in common i think is is just a fascination with kind of the little stories that exist within the world of ufo phenomenon we've talked before and when, when you're on the show last time about kind of the, i think you call them kook letters which were like the weird letters that the government were getting about ufos
1: Was it crank letters? letters yeah crank letters.
0: <laughs> yeah so i just love those little stories of like kind of the weird people and weird events that kind of pop up within within this world the people who would write the crank letters a lot of times but um the the film you did that you, you had already mentioned, the, this is one of those stories that just they exist out there, but most people don't know about them because somebody doesn't take the time to tell everybody. And that's kind of what you're doing. How did you learn about David Hamill?
1: It's kind of an obscure story. Oh, yeah. So I came to it kind of through a weird way, a really serendipitous way. I I'd actually first heard of David Hamill. When I was a kid because my mother worked for the federal government and a colleague of hers had a cottage near David's place he lives in Gilmore Ontario which is kind of in the middle of nowhere it's quite rural um, a couple hours you know south of Ottawa a few hours east of Toronto Um, and so I just kind of heard about him and he seemed like a wacky character but I didn't think much of it and then I just kind of forgot about it and he kind of just reemerged from me years and years and years later while I was doing my PhD, while I was looking into the UFO stuff, you know, had a conversation with my parents and she kind of brought it up again. And and I just got interested in a way it wasn't before. And so I just started doing some research, trying to find the guy um, going down many, many rabbit holes online. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then eventually I just met someone who happened to know of someone else who happened to know him. And through all these weird connections, I met uh, a journalist from Bancroft, which is very close by Gilmore who had known David personally. Um, And then he introduced me to the person who now lives on David's property because David passed away uh, about 10 years ago. And so just through a lot of luck really and a lot of perseverance, I I kind of found my way to the story again. But even the the amount of
0: story and the amount of David's life you managed to capture in the documentary, th- there's a lot that's not in there. But it's not – doesn't seem to be anywhere else. Like when I Google him or search him, all I really find is like kind of like two websites it seems to be. And they were – they're kind of old, ugly-looking websites um, that were put together at one time. But it just seems like this guy had this fascinating story that for the most part is just kind of lost – to the ages like in in all your work going into this and researching this guy what did you manage to learn about his life kind of leading up to building ufos or trying to build a ufo
1: i'm not sure that i learned a ton and and you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right he's just kind of faded away a little bit you know he was never that well known in the first place but i think Mm in certain kind of obscure circles on the internet he's well known and part of Kind of a, a tradition of guys interested in similar things in uh alternative physics and free energy and and the connection with that with ufos um but it, it was a struggle to find information about him that was that was the hardest part was uh just finding anything about him it took me ages even to figure out his death date because it wasn't written down anywhere i found his gravestone at the cemetery it didn't have the death date on it presumably because nobody paid to have it put on <laughs> I ended up having to call the cemetery volunteer board and they had to look through their roles to figure out when he died so wow. it was just kind of it, it It was pulling teeth a lot of the time to fake to find information and most of it came from personal stories of people who knew him there's very very little online about him mm-hmm. uh, I've I, as far as I know, I've checked basically every source I could find, and so the majority of the information just came from especially the two subjects in the film who had, mm-hmm. one had known him, one had done research of his own, uh, so there's a few people out there who knew him and, and have the information, but it, it's hard to find.
0: Yeah. My understanding of his life is this whole, his whole obsession with UFOs and extraterrestrials came, came to him later in life. Do you know what experience or what it was that led to him kind of taking this route like i to back it up i understand he was a pretty kind of simple guy like a handyman type dude who just eventually became obsessed with ufos
1: do you know how that started for him he did have some some specific experiences so i think he's one of those guys who's just always kind of had odd experiences throughout his life uh he's, he was originally from Quebec. he was a veteran of the second world war so i, I believe he was in dresden when it got bombed um, so he's had some some wacky experiences, and he recalled seeing UFOs for the first time during the war, and uh, just kind of carried it with him over the years. And so what I think precipitated this, this quest, this 30-year journey to build a flying saucer, which is what the short film I made kind of chronicles, is a very specific experience in 1975. And at that point, he was living in Maple Ridge, British Columbia. And he describes this scenario where he's sitting on his couch watching TV and it's all just that old white static that used to come on the TVs. And uh, all of a sudden a couple of dots enlarged and they just came, came out of the TV and turned into these beings, uh, human-like forms that kind of put their hands on his shoulder and it took him up into their spacecraft and, and showed him wonderful things. Okay, can you show us what happened Man. when you were watching television? When I was watching television, you want to put it on?
2: You will see uh, all these little dots there, and two of these little dots in the two center multiplied and took the shape of a person from the one dot on one side of me and the other dot on the other side of me. And they just put their hand on me. And they were silver-gray, all silver-gray, the little dots, like that. And just put your hands on me, don't be afraid, we're taking you for a ride. And and what did they look like? And I went straight through the (laughs) roof, right into the ship, right into that ship. And uh, they told me that uh, I could take any dimension I wanted to go to any parts of the ship to learn the mechanism of it. To and at the same time I was told that all the artifacts of these ship were all over this planet. Mind you, this is all gonna be destroyed very soon. All these pyramids, everything, everything on the face of the Earth is going to be changed very soon. Hmm. So what type of information did they give you? Um, did they tell you the information, how to make the machines, or did you have to discover it yourself? They made me go wherever I wanted on board the ship to learn the mechanism of it and how to reproduce it.
1: And that's what I'm doing.
2: I'm mm. working on that.
1: And this is a fairly common narrative when you get into, you know, UFO stories like this. But from that point on, he just became obsessed with building a flying saucer, uh, presumably trying to use the information that they gave him to do so. Uh, And I believe the end goal was to build a functioning saucer that could take him to their world so that he could visit himself. And I guess through those means also discover free energy and solve the world's energy crises and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't uh in any way like a, a kind of like a passing goal or interest he had. This was like an obsession. Like I I think based on what I've seen from him in 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 your film and what I've read online, it seems like that kind of took over his life and is likely what he spent, you know, everything he had on is his pursuit of building a flying saucer.
1: I think so it it seems clear to me that since the 70s that was basically all he did. He was, as far as I can tell, he was a kind of a handyman, a tradesman. He was fairly skilled, uh, but he didn't seem to have that much steady work, especially once he moved to Ontario from BC. Mm -hmm. I believe that he lived off a couple of pensions, a veteran's pension, maybe a disability pension. And he he put all of his time, all of his money, all of his resources into building this saucer um, because I guess he was just completely convinced that this, this was real and that if he worked hard enough, this was going to work.
0: Yeah, and, and you see it in your film. You you have some of that archival footage of him kind of explaining his theories and showing his drawings. He is beyond passionate. Like it's it's kind of like in his, you can see it in his face. It's like he knows he's right and he's trying so hard to explain it to the people who are filming him. It's almost frustrating to watch. He's just trying to you know to get it out at them, but uh, his ability to explain it leaves a bit to be desired. I think because some of his theories. Seem to be over my head anyway, when he gets into what exactly he's trying to do.
1: Yeah, that's that's something else I've noticed kind of in that tradition of guys doing this thing is they often have very, very idiosyncratic understandings of physics. And so Mm -hmm. you'll see them grappling with these concepts that, you know, at first blush don't make any sense at all. Uh-huh. possibly when you get more into them they, they bear some resemblances to science as we know it now but of course if this is all true then perhaps it would be completely unintelligible because it's coming from some advanced you know species um, but yeah that seems to be a common thing is that he just didn't he wasn't a trained scientist he wasn't a physicist he didn't have the language to understand this stuff so he made up the language himself and of course nobody else but him could really understand it.
0: Tell me a bit about Gilmore. Like I I know you from your film, you're you're there at his old property. What's that community like? Is it like is this a small little town in the middle of nowhere? I've never heard of it until your film.
1: Yeah, I don't think many people have heard (laughs) of it. It is literally just a small a tiny little town in, in in the bush. You know, when I was there the bugs were biting me. It was it was right in the bush and um, there's some drone shots in the film where you can see some of the landscape it's it's all trees it's water uh, it's quite rural um, and so it's a bit unclear why he moved to that specific spot uh, there doesn't seem to be much there for him especially since he seemed to get most of his material shipped into him from elsewhere anyway um, so I'm not exactly sure why that that spot but it's it's fascinating being there when you when you're familiar with the story and uh, I did end up going to his old property because the subjects, and the, one of the subjects, knew him and had been there before. And I interviewed the, Ray, the guy who lives there now, who owns Hamill's old property. And <laughs> I would say it's it's pretty much what you would expect from a story like that. There's you know kind of this ramshackle-looking house, and there's a, a really big shed, almost like a, a small warehouse out back on the property, and that's where he built the saucer. And it's just full of stuff old stuff that he used or repurposed um it it very much has that feel of a guy tinkering in his back shed for
0: years and years yeah and in your film you, you see what's kind of left of the saucer and it it involves magnets and granite and a lot of steel like can you tell
1: me what he was doing to build it like what exactly he was he was building out there yeah, he was, he was building a legitimate flying saucer. That there's not that much left of it um, mm. remaining. And that's kind of a mystery as well, where it all went, where all the material went. But what is left is, uh, or at least the most remarkable piece, is this outer ring of the saucer, which has got to be a good, you know, 15 feet across. And uh, the entire ring It has these really large rectangular earth magnets bolted to it all the way around. Really, really brittle, fragile magnets. And you can see in the film how fragile they are because they're almost flaking off at this point. Mm -hmm. And I I guess that was part of what he thought would propel it is is kind of some kind of magnetic energy. Um, There's a couple of old photos in the film as well. So you can see what it looked like when it was mostly built. But it it, it did just look like this metallic flying saucer. He used Mm -hmm. steel, aluminum... Um, granite of course all kinds of materials you know according to whatever design he had it's it's Mm -hmm. interesting yeah he had some
0: my understanding was he had some kind of plan where if it was if it had granite on the outside when he got it in the air and taking off the granite would Heat up and melt and form like a protective layer or something. Do you know how granite fit into this? It just seems like if you wanted something to fly to cover the thing in like heavy stone wouldn't be the best choice.
1: <laughs> it seems a bit counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I that's where I am really at a loss because you know there's not much of if anything that survives of his mm-hmm. of his notes of his drawings. There's a few things, but they're they're really unintelligible when you look at them. Uh, And so Barry in the film, he's he's this journalist um, that knew David personally. Apparently, David told him at one point that if the thing worked properly, it would ascend. And once it passed through the atmosphere, I guess it would grow so hot that apparently the granite would turn into glass. Uh, I don't know what the physics of that are. It it seems unlikely to me, but I'm also not a a physicist. I'm not a scientist like that. What would a
0: doctor of UFOs know about physics?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not much. Not as yeah. much as I would like to. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's pretty wacky the the stuff that he was talking about and it's some of it's hard to believe and but then, you know, he I think for me I, I don't understand enough about the physics, but that's not really w- also why I was interested in it. I was yeah. interested because because of his obsession, because of his perseverance. You know, I think there's something to be admired there even if you know not many people believed in like he did it's just it's fascinating mm-hmm.
0: and in your like the archival footage of him seen in in your film he at that point like he was already an old man like how when
1: did he pass away what year was it and how old would he have been so he, i think he was 82 uh, and he died oh i'm gonna blank on this i think it was 2009 or 2010. i'm pretty sure it's in the film yeah so only about 10 years ago he passed away um, and yeah, I had this archival, a, a bit of archival footage in the film that I managed to track down and 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 use. And and some of that is accessible online. Actually, you can search for it. Um, I'm not exactly sure where that archival footage came from. In speaking to people who knew David, they told me that there was just a steady stream of visitors coming to his place over the years, mm-hmm. as as word got out a bit more and more about what he was doing. And some people, I guess, took video. Um, and tried to sell it, tried to make a buck off of it, uh, or just took it for their own purposes. And so that's where that's coming from. But the stuff I used, yeah, it was coming later in his life. Um, he's definitely older. He's, I, it doesn't seem like he's working uh, on the craft that much at that point. Maybe the work had stalled or he was just getting too tired or something, but. Yeah, and it kind of, when you watch some of the like
0: I saw, I saw the footage used in your film and then kind of extended versions of that that I found online. And just like you said, it almost seemed as if it was just people who found out about him somehow, showed up at his house with like a camcorder, and he's just going – like just telling them. You know, that's kind of the – it doesn't seem like it's a journalist or something that's there. It's just people like, what are you up to? And he's showing them. And it's uh, it almost speaks to like how kind of – how much mystery surrounds the guy where even these videos you can't like how do? how are you able to use them in your film without tracking down the people who shot them
1: oh it is it was an odyssey and i didn't in the end actually track them down so it's kind of like just trying to find any information about david it's just this this circular rabbit hole you don't seem to get anywhere so i i'd found the footage i tried to contact the the webmasters of the sites where i found it Uh, There were some clips on YouTube. I tried to go through there to find people. I I just scoured trying to find contact information for any of these people who had made these videos. I thought I'd gotten that at one point I was on the phone with a guy in BC who knew Hamill who had maybe taken some video but he told me that again this steady stream of people had come through and so he didn't even know who had shot it. So I never actually got in touch with them in the end despite repeated attempts over months and so I just decided you know what I'm going to go ahead and use it. I think David's story is really interesting. I think people will appreciate it. Um, and I think I've done it in a, a respectful way. So that I don't, I don't think anyone have, would have a problem with that. But it, it's just weird because that became part of the mystery. It's like, who who shot this video? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, where are they now? There's there's one
0: website in particular that I tracked down that had a lot of photos and stuff of him that are some of the lowest resolution photos I've seen on the internet. Like, so it must be an old site. But there's so much written about him on this site by from someone who really comes across as like a fan of Hamill's. Um, but aside from that it's yeah it's it's strange that someone can make an impact on some communities but at the same time like some of these online communities but at the same time be almost like a ghost you know there's very little to, to find of him um, now what when I read about it like I mentioned the the person who put together that website I talked about seemed like a fan but I've also seen people who kind of looked at him as not a joke but looked at him as just a crazy guy doing something nutty what were the the, kind of the opinions on him that you encountered as you were reaching out to these people like how did people view Hamill and his work
1: yeah I think it was really one or the other Mm -hmm. um Uh, I I was given the sense that, you know, in online circles, for instance, he was taken quite seriously. Uh, And I said, like, this is kind of part of a tradition of guys doing this very similar kind of work. And so I think there is a thriving community around that kind of stuff. And they take them very seriously. But then on the other hand, there were people in the community or still are in the community, even years after his death, who just thought he was a crank, just thought he was a crackpot um, like any other one, they think. Um, And so, uh, I, I think it, I, I think it has what has an impact on this also is is just the fact that when he was working on this stuff, the internet was fairly new, and so that's why like a lot of these sites look really old, and a lot of the information is on these really old forums that don't even really work anymore. When information was not that accessible, um, and so I think it, it makes a difference whether you're looking online versus talking to people in the community who actually knew him because they have a very different experience of what he was doing.
0: Sorry to pull you away from the episode, but I want to take a moment to thank the subscribers of the Nighttime Premium Feed, as it's their support that makes this show possible. If any of you listening enjoy Nighttime and aren't subscribed to the Premium Feed, let me take a quick moment and explain what you're missing. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can subscribe to a different podcast feed in which the episodes are posted earlier than here in the free feed and are done without any advertising. But there's more benefits to the premium feed than simply better versions of the free content. The premium feed also includes post-show discussions and a variety of additional content that will take you even further into the rabbit holes. So if you got a couple dollars to pitch in towards the creation of Nighttime, the premium feed is for you. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com nighttimepodcast So with that said, again, a huge thanks to all subscribers to the premium feed and a thank you to everyone else listening for considering it. Now, let's get back to the episode. Tell me, you mentioned at the beginning that this documentary came out of some of the work you were doing towards your PhD. What inspired you to be like, I'm going to make a documentary about this guy? And how did you reach these people that knew him?
1: Yeah, I it, I didn't think of making a film at first. I had thought that David Hamill's story would make it into my, my research, into my dissertation. At one point, uh, I thought about writing, you know, just like a, an article about him, uh, um, like a feature article or something like that. And It just kind of over time turned into this matter of, well, maybe I could make a film. There's I found this archival footage, you know, it would be cool. I thought it would be cool to go to his place, see if I could track people down. Originally, when I when I decided, okay I'm going to try to make a film, I thought that I would just do a series of very short interviews with a lot of people from the community. Kind of have, you know, man on the street interviews. Who was this guy? What do you know about him? And then that changed, and in the film, in the end, there's only two subjects. There's Barry Hendry, who was this journalist from Bancroft, who knew David for years, uh, had lots and lots of chats with him, thought of David very, very highly. Uh, And Barry, I, I found Barry through his son, and I found his son through, you know, a colleague of mine, just this, like, broken telephone kind of process getting to him. And then Barry turned out to be this really amazing guy and then took me to the property, not knowing who was there. He actually hadn't visited since David died. And we just met Ray. Ray just kind of came out of the house and he's like, hey, guys. <laughs> and he just <laughs> he just is this fascinating guy. And, and oh, yeah, yeah, that's amazing because he's an incredible oh. interview,
0: Ray, the guy who lives yeah, there. Yeah, Ray, Ray is yeah, he was amazing. one of
1: the, the you know, my, my most favorite people I've ever met. He's just really, really interesting. And he knew the story of Hamill. He didn't know David personally. Um, And it turned out that he's, he's quite invested in Hamill's story and in, and possibly trying to carry on some of his legacy. It's, it's a bit unclear. Um, I think if I spent more time with them, I'd I'd learn more about that, but he also, I think is, has a lot of respect for David. And yeah. So like I said earlier, it's just this really serendipitous process of finding these people and making my way there
0: yeah but even like even with the two of them it you really get a sense of the story and I, i'm shocked that that's how you found ray because he's so like his, his head he gets you in the headspace almost of Hamill. like he seems like it could be uh you know a, a relative or something he has kind of a that vibe about him that he'd be into some interesting stuff yeah
1: yeah he's yeah there's something special going on and i remember distinctly walking up with barry the very first time we walked on the property and met Ray. And then shortly after he, he just kind of stopped and he told us, he's like, you know, people come here all the time looking for David or, or looking just to kind of explore. And he says, I never let them on the property. I've never let anybody until now. And that's what he's, that's what he told Barry and I, that we were the first people he'd actually let in to see the stuff because he just, wow. I guess he, he just got the the vibe from us that we, we not in this for, you know, personal gain or to manipulate the story in any way. We're just really interested in it.
0: Do you like after doing the, the the film, do you plan to do anything else with the story? Or you, you, do you think you're done with David Hamill's story at this point?
1: I would love to do more. Um, I would love to go back and talk to Ray more. I'd love to try to dig up more information, maybe make a longer film or write something about him. But I think the problem is, like I said earlier, that it's just so hard finding information. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty decent at research. I, I've been doing that for a long time and I'm kind of stymied. I'm, I'm, I hit a brick wall with what I could find online. And since David's gone and I don't know if he still has living relatives, I don't know where they are. Um, so you can only go so far with a story like that with someone who worked in obscurity his whole life and only had a small handful of you know friends and supporters who really knew him so th- there's maybe something in there but it would take uh, it would take a lot of work to dig all okay. that stuff out well, so we'll maybe
0: see. maybe someone will hear this episode that knows more and i can get them in touch with you well i'll have your info in the show notes so you never know oh if, absolutely uh, yeah yeah so for people who want to see the film and learn more about this guy how do they find your film
1: yeah you can go to my website, <laughs> If there's only one it's just me okay. <laughs> uh and, or you can just go to my vimeo page vimeo.com free food films uh and it's it's up there to watch for free i'd love it if anyone could check it out let me know what you think um yeah mm-hmm. i just want to i just want to get it out um yeah. and see what people think and I, I think it's an interesting story
0: definitely i'll have the link for it in the show notes as well so people will be able to find it well that's it unless there's anything else you want to add
1: No, I I just hope people enjoy I had a blast making it. It was frustrating at times. It was really wacky, kind of weird, but I think it it turned out well, and I think David's story is, is worth knowing.
0: I want to end by both recommending that listeners interested in this story check out Dr. Hayes' film, and also encouraging anyone with knowledge of Hamill's story to contact Dr. Hayes or I as I think we'd both love to hear more about David Hamill, as well as his work building a granite saucer. And with that, I'll start wrapping up this episode. But before I do, I'm going to end with thanks. First, a big thank you to Dr. Matthew Hayes for again joining me here on Nighttime. Dr. Hayes, I think we're kindred spirits, and I really hope to have you on the show again many times in the future. And next, and most importantly, a huge thank you to the listeners of Nighttime. Without your interest and your support, nighttime would have seen the light of day many moons ago. But the battle to keep the show going is still raging on, and I need as many of you as possible to have my back. So if you want to help keep the lights out here at nighttime, let me recommend the premium feed. It's what makes the show possible. And having said that, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Graham Brown, C. Mosher, and Steph McDonald, Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply liking and sharing the episodes on social media. And if you aren't already following me on social media, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and I use the handle at NighttimePod. If anyone listening has any story ideas or wants to give feedback on the show, contact me through NighttimePodcast.com slash contact. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright, Jordan Bonaparte. Before I go, let me leave you with one more thing. My good pal Leroy Luna just launched his own podcast, and I'm sure many of you are going to dig it. Leroy is a really unique guy. And his show is also very unique. Check out Excuse Me, That's Illegal wherever you get nighttime.
1: Oh, hey there. You like true crime stories, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. Who doesn't? But I got to admit, after a while, all those stories of murder and heartache, well, they tend to go straight to my hips. So that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips, Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as the Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood, using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal is available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you.